going on, everybody? Welcome to the Non-Negotiables Podcast. Sorry for the background noise. No time to record this episode in a quiet room, so you're coming on a drive with me. I hope you can hear me well. As always, I want to lay out what this podcast is all about. It's about one thing and one thing only. Non-negotiables. Those baseline values, those absolutely agreed upon, accepted, underpinning social truths that we can't do this little thing called society or civilization without. As a people, if we don't have some non-negotiables, then, well, we lose everything. So today's non-negotiable is that socialism is bad. Yep, can't believe I have to do an episode about this, but I do. Socialism is bad. Across the entire world, socialism and communism, and yes, they are synonyms, basically. It's been tried time and time again, and it falls apart, falls flat on its face over and over again. So you got to ask yourself, why? Why? What the hell would anyone consider socialism or communism a good thing? And you know, the latest sort of socialist takeover that I've been alive for, that I've been alive to see the entire arc, is Venezuela. And I'm sort of connected to Venezuela in a way. My, uh, my father is Italian by ethnicity, but he was actually born in Venezuela. His family migrated from Italy to, to Venezuela before he was born. And got some friends that are from Venezuela. I remember being a kid in the 80s and, and going to Venezuela for a vacation and being really enthralled by Caracas and, and the different beach resorts that we went to. I just found actually the pictures from that trip. What a beautiful, beautiful country. And uh, those friends of ours, they used to come to New York every year because the, the woman, Loida, she used to run in the New York Marathon. And I remember she would pack up luggages full of things like Colgate and Scope and, uh, and uh, you know, American-branded things. It was uh, a, real, a real show of, of being well-to-do when she got back home when folks used her bathroom and saw a tube of Colgate toothpaste sitting there on the counter. And they were doing well. The whole country was doing well. Exporter of oil and, and gas and just, uh, just really, really a rich country. Capitalism thriving. I remember being at a bar. Uh, and if you do the math, I was probably too young to be in there, but it was our neighborhood lax ID law bar and uh, watching the TV watching uh, Chavez 
Hugo Chavez on the TV uh, doing an interview standing next to Fidel Castro talking about how happy he was to finally be able to step in and bridge the gap between the haves and the have-nots. He was screaming about how the rich people in the country were were sucking dry the poor. He was uh, he was talking about how people were getting paid slave wages and how the the country was was so rich, but there were so many poor people. And there were massive crowds of literally, literally hundreds of thousands of people screaming in the street, you know, applauding that this this man was now in power. And I should have looked up the date, but you know, I don't know, it was ninety something, I guess. Late nineties? I don't remember, but my mother was Cuban, and so I, I understood where this was headed. I've also always been a, a, a sort of conservative and always been interested in politics, even even as a pretty young kid. So I, uh, I knew exactly where this was headed. But the image that sort of burns in my mind and the, and the answer to my initial question, how? How do, how do we get here? How does this happen? Why, why do people insist that this is a, a style of government that can work? Well, the fact is that those people in the street were the undereducated and high, uh, high, high-minded, uh, postmodernist, educated university students. They were the ones that were taught that uh, equality of outcome was what was required. You know, the country was so rich and so few people really, truly went hungry. But they couldn't afford, say, a car or, or a nice house. They would have to, you know, they wanted to work in the power centers like Caracas, so they would have to, you know, pile in, tend to an apartment to be where the action was. And so not realizing that that's a sacrifice you make so that you can sort of get the income, so that you can crawl out of that lower tier and and do better for yourself without realizing that for there to be prosperity, there's got to be some folks that don't make it. Not understanding that they're part of of a thing called society that sort of just puts these opportunities out there and then it's on you to make something of them. And so they didn't get that. And so here comes this guy. Chavez. In his military outfit. And he's telling them everything they want to hear. He's saying to them, you know, you deserve security. You deserve to be able to buy whatever you want. You deserve a house. You know, the Bible warns about people that tickle the ears. 
if uh, if you're out there today and you're a person of color or if you're a, a part of the LGBT community you need to not support the people who say you can do no wrong they're just tickling your ears they're just out there telling you that you are infallible and perfect and everything that's wrong in your life is because of someone else and you know that's not true and these folks in Venezuela knew it wasn't true either there were a lot of people in that cheering crowd who spent what should have been rent money on liquor who didn't save who perhaps couldn't save, but had no plan on how to make things better for themselves. There were people in that crowd who, instead of using the the haves as motivation for doing better in their lives, they used it as an excuse. Well, what happened is what always happens. As soon as the people with the most to lose realized that, well, this is happening now, we're socialists now, they got up and left. They got up and left. The rest of the people, they couldn't get up and leave, but had the brains, they divested in whatever it was that the state was going to take over. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, first thing that he took over was the oil production. Kicked out all the American companies. The American imperialists, he said. Shell and and BG and got them all cleared out of the country. Some of the people who were well positioned, like in construction, they stuck around because every socialist government starts to pile on make-work projects. Venezuela has countless half-completed bridges, countless bridges to nowhere. Paved roads that, that extend for miles and just stop. And so in those early years, a lot of people got really, really rich. I've met some of those people recently here in South Florida in Doral. Doral is something like 70% Venezuelan now. Because when it finally crashed, as it always does, people with any amount of money, any contacts here in the States, they up and left. Watching that arc... Watching that arc really scares me. Thinking back on that time really, really scares me. Because we always said that that could not happen in the United States. The United States is the land of the free capitalism, free markets. And honestly, we got to thank God that we have Donald Trump. Donald Trump has proven the power of free markets. For the first time in decades, the, uh, the, the top concern of voters is not the economy. 
nearly 90% of voters now don't see the economy as the top tier reason to vote for a candidate. So maybe we've staved this off for, for a little while. So now we've got Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, actually. We even have, uh, well, when it comes to healthcare, we have every single, every single one of the candidates looking to socialize healthcare. And we got a picture of it already with Obamacare. Problem is that when you socialize industries, when the government takes over industries, it's always going to get worse. The fact is that the only way industry works, services works, innovation works, the only reason it works is because people are ambitious. Some might call it selfish. And the thing is that we've given that a negative connotation, but it's not negative. It's really not. A little selfishness goes a long way. And when you talk about selfishness, I'm not talking about the guy that screws people over. I'm talking about sort of an altruistic selfishness, if that's even possible. That selfishness that says, I'm going to treat you right. I'm going to work to create a win-win situation here because I want it to better my situation. So I want to make you happy. I want you to tell 10 people how happy you are. And those 10 people, I want to make them happy. And exponentially, I want to have a series of voluntary transactions where everyone, or at least a plurality, of the people involved feel like it was a win for them. And then I want to get rich off of that. But you can't do that. You can't do that when the government's involved. See, the government has no competition. The government can't compete. The government doesn't care whether you are satisfied or you feel it's a win-win. And you get that sense just from what Bernie Sanders talks about when he talks about healthcare. He comes on and he says, healthcare is costing the American people well over $50 trillion. Now, if everybody pays a little bit, it will bring down your cost, out-of-pocket cost. Uh in just 10 years. Okay. Except that I don't spend money on healthcare. And there are, dare I say, hundreds of thousands of people that don't spend money on healthcare. Can't afford insurance. And when I get sick, I take Tylenol. Now, if you come at me and you force me to pay you thousands of dollars a year in 
taxes so that you can give me health care, well, now I'm not going to hold off. Now that cold that I normally would have taken Tylenol for, now that cold is uh, better suited to be seen by a doctor. So I go to a doctor's office, and now the doctor's office has one more person that it wouldn't have had if it were a free market healthcare system. So where did your estimation of healthcare costs go, Mr. Sanders? Well, they went up. Because you see, now I decided I'd rather not pay for healthcare. I'd rather take care of my ailments as they come. But if you're forcing me to pay, well, then I'm not going to do that. Why, why ever would I spend $5 extra on, a, on Tylenol cold and flu when I'm already paying for the doctor's visit, for the doctor to see me, for the doctor to give me maybe antibiotics, something better, something more expensive, So then, the costs go up. All of a sudden, these pie-in-the-sky budgets implode. Well, the government's got few options, if any, really. They can do one of two things, I guess. They can sort of cut back on health benefits. They can sort of uh, ration health care. And, of course, they're not going to do that early on. I mean, they need to build support for this. They need to build dependence for this. They need people to be completely bought in, completely dependent on it. So, they'll tax more. They'll tax more, and as they tax more, more industry will leave. As more industry leaves, unemployment will go up. You see, right now... We've got about 25 to 30 million people in this country, close to 10% of the folks in this country, who could really benefit from something like this. That is not anywhere near enough to flip the whole script. It's not anywhere near enough to build true, universal uh, hope and desire for a communist system. But... When all these major corporations duck out and unemployment goes through the roof, because of course these companies are not going to sit around and get soaked, then, oh yeah, that's when real support starts to climb. Just like it did in Venezuela. Because yeah, I mean, Chavez had hundreds of thousands of people screaming in the streets when he came to power. But nothing like What happened when the oil and gas industry started to move out? Nothing like what happened when the electrical companies started to get nationalized. Nothing like the automotive industry when he nationalized that. Along with just about every other manufacturing and and industry in, in the country. More and more people got unemployed. More and more people became dependent on the government. And then, as it always does, it collapses. Now, you cannot have any dissent 
At the moment that it all collapses and people start to get upset with the way things are going, socialist government, in order for it to finally take the turn and, and flip over and become a communist hellhole, people's attitudes towards what's going on needs to change. As soon as they start feeling shortages, as soon as they start seeing that all of the ear-tickling and promises were all false, they need to now sort of drop the hammer. And like in every communist country, you start to imprison dissidents. You start to, you know, kill and imprison people who come out and say, they're lying to us, don't you see? You start a campaign of fear. You start a campaign of rage. Venezuela saw a lot of corporate executives killed by, by mob violence. And, and don't think that that's just some sort of crazy conspiracy psycho notion. You know, this isn't some dystopian fairy tale. The guys that are working for the Bernie campaign said as much. They talked about Jeff Bezos, the owner and CEO of Amazon. Said, look, we can put him in a gulag to break rocks and get re-educated. And it's up to him. I mean, he can either come on board or he can go up against the wall. Now, (laughs) I'm no fan of Amazon. I'm no fan of, of people that are so powerful that they can literally sway elections and you know, build AI and that can you know, take over entire civilizations. I'm no fan. But the fact is that Jeff Bezos built something that has made all, all of our lives better, assuming that most people use Amazon. Jeff Bezos is a It's a human being that employs thousands upon thousands, maybe 100,000 other human beings. He has situated himself as as a driving force in our economy. When you remove him, when you break apart something like that, think about the trickle effect. That, that tree of satisfied, employed, uh, you know, members of our communities. When they fall apart, what do you do with those people? Well, the ones that buy in and are now happy that they're not working for 10 bucks an hour, 8 hours or 10 hours a day. Uh, going crazy, doing the same thing over and over again, meeting insane quotas. Yes, I, I know all the problems. Those people will be happy, right? All their needs are being met. They can stay home and watch Judge Judy. But all the higher-ups that are now taking a, a kneecapping in their own personal economy, what do you do with them? You can't release them into the wilds of this brave new world with their capitalistic ideas? Well, you ask. Just ask Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign office workers. What do you do with them? 
Well, we can try to re-educate them, or we can put them up against the wall. That is socialism, folks. There's just no two ways about it. It doesn't go any other way. And if those of you that are out there believing that places like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, well, they, they, they're socialist and uh, they, they make it work. Well, go on YouTube. Find out what they say about that. As soon as Bernie Sanders started talking like that, the uh, Prime Minister of Denmark got on it in front of the first camera that he can find and said, we are not socialists. We have huge social safety nets, yes, but we are capitalists. And they are. They're also tiny countries, totally homogenous. They have a strong social fiber where they check themselves and each other. In Denmark, when you see a, a slothful slug just suckling on the government teat and not doing anything for society, he is cast aside, ostracized. People realize in that society that the only way they keep their, their level of life or of standard of life is by participating. Can you imagine that here? Can you imagine saying, hey, 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 there's a family there with, you know, five kids, mom and dad, they're perfectly healthy, they don't work. <gasps> you racist. You classist. You capitalist. This things wouldn't work in our society, bottom line. Bottom line. So as we come up on this election, the primaries have kicked off. Every one of us out, out here and everyone out there in the, within the sound of my voice, you need to talk. You need to lay these things out, particularly with the young people in your life. Definitely with the college-educated idiots in your life. You need to lay out for them the facts about socialism. You need to show them that it's not just that it hasn't worked, it's that it can't work. That the, the human heart, the human spirit will fight against it. The same selfishness that makes for a great capitalist society and, 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 and urges us on to build something so that we can secure ourselves and our posterity. That same selfishness when there is no way, when there is no, uh, nothing you can do, when the government handles everything, that same selfishness will go the other way. It'll urge us on to just take and take and take. Way more than we ever give. And as we know, resources are not infinite. And it will always collapse. I want to tell you another, another story and then we'll wrap up for today. My wife is from Argentina. And um, 
Argentina is another one of these socialist hotbeds. Government takes over industry and they've got socialized health care. And we went. We went to Argentina with the family. We had a great time. We did a, an Airbnb and stayed in some nice apartment there. Enjoyed meeting her family and, and uh, friends. And uh, the exchange rate was amazing. They had just had one, another of many financial collapses. So bad for the people of Argentina, but great for tourism. And so we went and we, we were having a good old time there in the apartment one morning. And my youngest at the time, he was playing, uh, running around and tripped over something. I think it was a, a little toy broom or a shovel or something. And he smashed his chin against the floor so hard that it split wide open and started pouring blood all the way down his chest. I panicked. I, you know, I just, you know, my wife panics. We just, we, we're in a, a foreign country. We don't know what to do. Grab a, a fistful of paper towels. I hold it up to his chin. I scoop him up and I run downstairs and uh, start looking around for uh, remis, they call it, like a taxi. Sure enough, one sort of ambles by. I wave him down. I jump in the uh, the cab and I say, "I just take me to the closest hospital." I you know I need he split his chin open, and he looks at me and he goes, "American, right?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah." He goes, "I'm not going to take you to the closest hospital. The closest hospital is our public hospital, and truth be told, you're not going to like it, and the kid's probably going to get an infection. I'll take you to the private place." Okay, whatever, just go. So the guy takes me to the private hospital. And I'm going to tell you that this place has absolutely nothing to envy any American medical facility. It was chrome and floor-to-ceiling glass panel windows and marble on the floor and beautiful artwork, gorgeous oak finishes, on everything. Walked in there and they said, well, uh, it's $250 US for for the boy to be seen. Really? Okay. So I gave them their $250. And he was brought into a triage area and they were very nice and they said, well, Mr. Mattia, then, you know, we we can sort of put a butterfly on there, but... um, if you'd like him to, if you'd like to limit his scarring, we'd be happy to call in our local plastic surgeon to to go ahead and, and stitch him up nice and tight and, and limit scarring there. And I said, well, yeah, sure, go ahead and do that. Okay, go downstairs and pay 580 additional U.S. dollars, and and we'll go ahead and get that done for you. And I was doing all right back then, so I said, okay, and I went to their business office and paid my money and lo and behold about 15 minutes later a nice young man walked into the room hi I'm the plastic surgeon and I'll be taking care of your son and 
there were two nurses along with him irrigating the cut and the stitching was absolutely beautifully done and I was cared for in absolutely no time at all and my son was on his way out the door with uh, some children's Tylenol we enjoyed the rest of our vacation or at least most of it you see I at that time hadn't had a procedure on my back that I needed and was dealing with some split some slip discs and disc degeneration and I didn't bring enough medication it was uh, anti-inflammatory pain medication and uh, talking to a friend of mine who saw me suffering and they said you know Um, You can go to the local hospital and uh, and they'll see you and then, you know, you you explain to them what you have. You show them your bottle, the prescription you have, and and they'll refill it right there. The local hospital was a public hospital. When I walked into that place, I realized what that taxi cab driver had saved my son from. It was an absolute sea of people. I don't know if you... Uh, if you're old enough, you'll remember those floors, those polished floors with like, it looks like they have like pieces of gems in there. They're like this pale yellow 70s flooring and, uh, and just these dingy yellow walls along the sides. The, the benches that lined the waiting room were absolutely full of people and then there were dozens of more people just standing around. I was asked to sign in and to explain the situation to, I guess, a triage nurse or a a receptionist type person there and just at the head of this crowd of folks. And they said, well, have a seat. And I did. And about two hours later, I left. (laughs) Nobody, nobody seemed to move from that place. I'm sure that they were seeing patients somewhere, but the room that I was in, in two hours' time, it hadn't emptied at all. Now, isn't this worse? Isn't a situation like that worse than what we have now? Doesn't that divide the haves and the have-nots even more? I mean, the people that were there in that waiting room, as I looked around, there were people in that waiting room that for sure some of them were cancer patients, people with serious injuries, people coughing, sneezing with bloodshot eyes that you know they're running severe fevers. In America today, a few years ago, My wife's grandmother, here illegally, by the way, at the age of 85, fell and broke her hip. She was taken to a local hospital, not a public hospital, mind you, a privately owned hospital. They did her MRI. They saw she had a broken hip. They asked for her insurance. Doesn't have any. How are you going to pay for it? There's nothing, she has nothing. She has no assets, nothing. Said, okay, don't worry about it. We're going to give her emergency Medicaid. 
or Medicare. They went in, they did a surgery, they, they, uh, they surgered her hip and, and got her fixed up. And then they gave her like four months of physical therapy, all on the arm. She lived an additional five years walking around, healthy again. And then when she was at the end of her life and uh, could no longer walk, talk, her heart uh, function was down to 11%. That same hospital, together with the Catholic Charities of South Florida, gave her hospice care in her home. Morphine, IVs, 24-hour nurse, hospital bed in her home. She never paid a dime. No one ever paid a dime. Charity and existing government help for extenuating circumstances cared for it all. In Argentina or in Uruguay where she was from, she would have died in that waiting room. She would have, her hip would have gotten so bad it couldn't be surgery. Or under Obamacare, a question was asked to him at one of his town halls. I have an 80-year-old grandmother who needs surgery. Would Obamacare cover her surgery? And what did Obama say? Well, uh, in that case, perhaps it might not be prudent to spend money on an 80-year-old person and have surgery. Perhaps we just make her comfortable and make sure she's in no pain until she keels over and dies. Go on YouTube if you haven't seen that clip. Obama death panels. I think that's what they named it. Socialism doesn't work, good people. Not only does it not work, it's evil. One more story from Argentina. That same trip. Argentina has a lot of really smart people. Mostly European descendant people, uh, you know, hustlers. They live in a socialist land, so they have to make ends meet where they can. And I was speaking to a young restaurateur. Uh, one of the things you notice when you go to Argentina is cell service is insanely expensive. Like, prohibitively it's expensive I said to them you know there's a great opportunity in Argentina for a new cell phone company and he says oh yeah well what are you thinking I said well we could do what they do in the United States we could lease the cell space from existing cellular companies but we can have a uh like a commercial or advertisement driven cell service so you can actually listen to cell service you can you can sell the data geolocation data of people uh, on the cell service and have local businesses advertise through those phones and, and and access these people's wants desires needs whatever and it'll help offset the cost of cell service and you could probably cut cell service in half, the cost of cell service in half for the people who are willing to put up with annoying spams and ads and things like that. Almost like a Metro PCS or a cricket type of system 
where you know one flat rate you get some data you get cell service and he looks at me and he goes yeah you know that's something that might just work but that's the problem <laughs> and so how can it be a problem that it's something that could work I mean how can that be the problem and he says Mark the moment that it works well the instant that it actually does work and that people are happy with the service the the the, the second that you become or start to, to march towards wealth the government will step in and will nationalize that business they can't not nationalize that business anywhere that they can take money the, the creation of wealth anywhere they can step in and scoop that up they have to do it because they can't afford the gov- to run the government as it is and I realized in that moment I, I saw I, I, I could understand how even this nation, full of young, energetic, intelligent people, I can understand how how it was falling apart. And today, go take a look at Argentina. They've lasted longer than expected. And mostly because it's a huge country with lots of natural resources. But they'll fall apart eventually. They'll collapse into civil war and total disarray eventually. You realize, even this guy, a restaurateur, all the ambition in the world, smart as a whip, he's got his own independent wealth socked away in a drawer somewhere. You cannot unleash him in that situation. He cannot create. He can't be a a, a small part of the expansion of your nation, of the creation of wealth. Even if he had an opportunity and he had the ability to build something there, he wouldn't. You crush innovation in a socialist society. And that's that. That's my spiel. We gotta get our crap together, people. We gotta got to get out there we got to talk to people we got to fight we have to fight this insidious encroachment of socialism in our country i know you're busy i know you got jobs <coughs> i get it i got a job too i know you got wives and husbands and kids i understand But there will be nothing left if we don't fight against this sickness, this evil that's threatening us. And it's at our door. Bernie Sanders won Iowa. He will win New Hampshire. And I can almost guarantee he'll be in the top three in Nevada. This is crazy. crazy
We need to fight. We need to be willing to lay down our very lives. There is no uh, happy medium here anymore. We had that 20 years ago. We passed laws that said, you know, hey, healthcare provider, you cannot turn away a person without stabilizing them first. Someone walks into your emergency room, you must care for them. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that ideal? No. But it was working. For everybody that I spoke to during the whole Obamacare debate, and they said, people are dying without health care. I said, name one. Name one person that you know that has tried to get health care and has not been able to name one person, just one, and I will change my mind. And nobody could name one. Not even one in the media. Every time they trotted out one of these mothers, single mothers whose kid has asthma and who she's, she's crying because she's struggling to pay for that nebulizer. You know it's a lie. You know it's propaganda. Because most of you attend a church or, or a YMCA or some sort of uh, social group or know of a social group that if that mother or any mother walked in and said, hey, I don't have $15 for my kid's nebulizer. You know that group would give it up gladly. Most would pick up and buy 30 and hand her a month's supply or or a year's supply or whatever long you need them for. Yeah, whatever. You get where I'm coming from. Fight hard. Kick ass. Uh, for those of you who don't know, follow me on YouTube and go ahead and subscribe to the Non-Negotiables Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, also, On The Mark on YouTube, On The Mark at Twitter, On The Mark, on Minds.com. Thanks, you guys, for, for listening, and I'll catch you all later.